0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today we talk with Paul Joskow, Elizabeth and James Killian Professor of Economics at MIT, and a member of RFF's President's Council. Paul has had a long and distinguished career spanning a wide range of energy and environmental topics. But today, we're going to talk about a new paper he's written, examining the challenges associated with expanding the electricity grid. Growing the grid will be a critical component for achieving our long-term decarbonization goals, but it comes with lots of hurdles. I'll ask Paul to help us understand those hurdles and what solutions might help knock them down. Stay with us. All right, Paul Joskow from MIT, thank you so much for coming on to Resources Radio.
1: Well, Daniel, thank you for uh, inviting me. Uh, it's a uh, very kind, and uh, I welcome this opportunity to share some of my thoughts on the issues we're going to discuss.
0: Yeah, and we're going to focus today on the electricity grid. Uh, but before we get into the details, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental or energy issues in the first place, whether as a kid or, or later in life. So what steered you into this line of work?
1: Uh, well, actually, I had no... Particular interest in environmental issues when I was a graduate student, but I became very interested in uh, government regulation uh, and regulatory reform. I decided to work on the electric power industry, uh, largely because there were lots of utilities at that time. There were lots of state regulators, 49 to be exact, uh, and lots of, lots of data. When I came to MIT, uh, the MIT Energy Laboratory had just started, and I began to work with people there who were interested in estimating electricity demand, looking at electricity supply, different generating technologies, and so on. Uh, And once I got into that, it became obvious that you couldn't really examine constructively many of the issues. Uh, and forces that were affecting the electric power sector without getting involved and interested in the environmental impacts of electricity supply and uh, uh, electricity consumption. Uh, I've been working uh, on a project on uh, nuclear safety and siting when the Three Mile Island accident took place and that reinforced my interest in uh, those aspects of environmental issues. And then after the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 were passed, the EPA asked me to be a public member of the Acid Rain Advisory Committee. And that's really when I became very interested in uh, mechanisms for controlling uh, pollution, especially air pollution.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, So as many of our listeners will know, one of the you know most important things that we could do to control air pollution and climate change in the power sector over the next couple of decades is to uh, dramatically increase uh, the amount of long distance electricity transmission capacity that we have in this country. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So can you give us a kind of you know high level overview of like why we need to expand the grid to meet some of these environmental goals and also give us a sense of, uh, of the scale that is likely to be needed to actually achieve some of those goals in the long term?
1: Sure. There, there really are two primary reasons uh, why the expansion of The transmission network is necessary to support efficient deep decarbonization of the electric power sector in the U.S., but it's also true in Europe, uh, China, and uh, other places. Uh, The first reason is that as we look out to uh, 2050, let's say, uh, to a a net zero electric power sector, it's going to be composed heavily of wind and solar uh, generation, uh, since they're zero carbon, they become quite cheap, and the configuration, whether it's 70 or 80 percent, it's going to be very high. And many of the most attractive wind and solar sites are located in parts of North America that are further from demand areas, further from the bulk of the existing fossil generating capacity, far from the existing transmission network, uh, compared to today's geographic configuration. Uh, to access and integrate the best wind and solar resource areas, we just need more transmission capacity to, to develop the connections to get the supplies to where the demand is. And, and just some examples, just I'll look at the Northeast because I'm, I'm sitting here in Boston. Uh, the, the best wind sites uh, are offshore uh, and some areas of upstate New York, Maine, and a few other areas that are pretty remote from uh, the major demand centers. There's also abundant hydroelectric capacity in Quebec, uh, but to to get access to these resources, uh, we need to build basically new transmission infrastructures offshore, uh, but also to gain access to the areas in upstate New York and Northern New England, there's tremendous congestion on the transmission network between the North and the South. And if we want to get more access to the wind and hydro resources in those areas, we, we have to expand the transmission network to remove the congestion and to make it feasible to push more power down from, uh, from those resources. I want to emphasize the word efficient. Uh, if we're going to make this transition, we want to try to do it as economically as we can. And, uh, uh, those resources are just located in other areas. Another area is the Midwest. The, uh, there's a swath, large swath, through the Great Plains, from Canada to, to Western Texas, tremendous wind resources. Uh, but historically, uh, there's not a whole lot of demand in those areas. There uh, isn't much of a transmission network. And if we want to really move that, uh, that zero carbon energy to load centers east of there, uh, uh, even in Texas, to eastern Texas, where, where, where most of the demand is, we need new transmission uh, infrastructure to make that possible. Uh, the second primary reason really is a consequence of the attributes of wind and solar generation. Uh, these are intermittent generating technologies. What does that mean exactly? Well, uh, with the current configuration of fossil generators and, and nuclear, nuclear power generators, uh, the, the production is basically controlled by the system operator based on uh, the economics of dispatching more or less electricity from uh, different generating plants. uh, The system operator basically controls the system, uh, moves up and down an economic dispatch curve, tells which generators to produce and which generators to stop producing as the system operator tries to balance supply and demand uh, continuously. But wind and solar generation are different. Uh, The amount of generation, uh, for those resources is driven by highly variable and exogenous wind speeds and directions, variations in solar radiation and other weather conditions. The system operator can't control those. The system operator needs to respond to those uh, and uh, uh, the wind, uh, solar radiation and so on, uh, they uh, vary from place to place uh, as well. As a result, uh, wind and solar resources can be utilized most efficiently by, by expanding and integrating existing wholesale market areas to take advantage of the geographic diversity uh, in the variations of the, the wind and solar resource drivers uh, so that we can basically aggregate over wider areas uh, so that uh, uh, the wind is high in uh, one area of the Midwest and low in another area uh Uh, the ups and downs can be uh, uh, accounted for uh, by integrating the resources together. And there have been a number of studies that have shown that expanding supply diversity reduces costs as well. And I think this is an important piece of the puzzle here. People talk about expanding transmission, but many of the models that have have looked at the, uh, the costs and benefits of expanding transmission implicitly assume that what goes along with it, Uh, is further integration of wholesale markets for electricity over wider geographic areas. Uh, In Europe, they call it market coupling. Uh, I guess here we would call it more wholesale market integration. Those are the two primary reasons.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So um, you explored this issue in, in really great detail in a recent paper which we'll have a link to in the show notes. The paper is called Facilitating Transmission Expansion to Support Efficient Decarbonization of the Electricity Sector. And a- along with the points you just made, you, you um, early on in the paper, you lay out some of the challenges to actually you know making this expansion happen in the real world. Many of us are familiar with the concept of not in my backyard or NIMBY, which is one barrier, but you argue that there are plenty of other barriers that go well beyond NIMBYism. Can you give us some thumbnail sketches of what those other barriers are? Sure, uh, and I'll, I'll come
1: back to NIMBY. but let me do that last, and let me let me just point to some of the other uh, barriers. I, I think the first barrier is is simply the fact that the U.S. does not yet have a national decarbonization policy, <laughs> right. and it creates all kinds of problems with uh, transmission planning, tra- project selection, cost allocation, uh, especially in areas where the system operators cover multiple states with very different decarbonization policies. And the result of that is transmission planning uh, often devolves into arguments about who's going to pay. And the states that uh, have adopted deep decarbonization targets want to pay for more transmission to get at these resources. The states that haven't, uh, or maybe protecting their coal industries, don't. So I I think it's just an enormous challenge to to do this right if uh, we we don't have a national decarbonization policy. Second, uh, there's an institutional mismatch between the geographic expanse over which transmission planning and cost allocation takes place and the locations of the uh, best solar and wind sites. Uh, The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which I'll I'll refer to as FERC, its acronym, uh, tried to improve the situation when it issued an order in 2011, uh, order 1000, requiring system operators to look more aggressively at opportunities to expand into regional transmission. Uh, but if you look at the planning areas that are defined, they reflect the, uh, you know, a hundred years of the history of the electric power industry. They don't, they don't match well with the, uh, where the, most attractive wind and solar resources are located. Uh, And as a result, uh, Order 1000 has has not been very successful in expanding uh, uh, interregional transmission capacity to better access wind and solar resources. I argue in the paper, and I'm I'm, I'm sure that this is going to be quite controversial, that we really need an umbrella transmission uh, planning organization uh, that covers... The whole U.S. and Canada, uh, because our electric power systems uh, are largely synchronized between the the two countries. Uh, And uh, I give the example, the European example, that have created an an umbrella transmission planning organization called ENSO, ENSO ENSOE for electricity, uh, and it identifies promising interregional transmission expansion options and supporting upgrades to the existing network to integrate the generating resources that the projects make available. And, uh, you know, in the U.S., we have the North American uh, Electric Reliability Corporation, or better known as NERC, which creates and enforces reliability rules uh, for operating the networks in, uh, in North America, but it doesn't have any planning responsibility. Uh, and what I'm suggesting is that we create an umbrella planning organization that doesn't replace the existing independent system operators or the existing uh, uh, 15 transmission planning areas defined by FERC, but provides an umbrella that uh, integrates the system, uh, develops scenarios uh, looking out to 2035 or 2050, uh, and identifies a promising uh transmission projects uh that uh, uh, could be developed by private developers uh, by by uh transmission utilities uh, cooperative arrangements between the current planning areas and i i really like to see the us have a, an organization similar to enso in uh in europe that covers the the us and canadian perspectives that can play an integrating role with a broad overview of where the resources are and where the demand is uh, to identify potential transmission options that take account of decarbonization goals, you know, as well as other goals, reliability goals, ec- other economic goals, and, and so on. Uh, I think the third problem is that the, especially the independent system operators. These are there, there are several in the Northeast. Texas and California and the Midwest, the independent system operators uh, have not taken decarbonization uh, in general as a objective uh, in their planning processes. And, and if you look over, over time, and I've been involved in this business for a long time, uh, the transmission planning criteria that, that FERC has specified have, have evolved over time. That's kind of a nice term. Uh, first, they said, well, you should only look at reliability considerations and leave all other transmission investments to the market. Well, the market didn't produce anything. So then the goals were expanded to include so-called market efficiency criteria, which are basically opportunities to not just improve reliability, but reduce congestion inside the ISOs. Then they were expanded to include undefined public policy projects, largely to placate states that have adopted deep decarbonization goals. So in my view, transmission planning should include all the benefits and costs, including the the benefits and costs of decarbonization commitments and uh, in evaluating alternative transmission projects. And in doing so, we should try to identify the best configuration that takes account of, 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 of all of the costs and benefits of a transmission network. And then argue about who's going to pay for the uh, for the upgrades that are there to fulfill decarbonization commitments. So that the states that have them will will be allocated those costs, and those that have not adopted them will uh, will will not. But uh, we will separate those. Right now, the cost allocation has become a, a real problem because it, it it's it's basically. Uh, those jurisdictions uh, and states that don't want to pay for transmission projects to access wind and solar sites uh, become an impediment to doing efficient uh, transmission transmission planning.
0: Right, and one just quick sure. uh, clarification question: So cost allocation for those those listeners who might not know what that term refers to is that essentially, you know, like what portion of the project ends up on different consumer bills at the end of the day, or does it mean something yeah.
1: else? Well, ultimately, everything ends up on the consumer's bill. <laughs> Basically, just to give you an example, in New England, uh, there's a, a project in development, maybe we'll talk about it uh, further, that uh, is going to increase the uh, transmission capabilities to bring more hydroelectric energy from Canada uh, into New England. However, it's a project that uh, is responding to a Massachusetts public policy initiative, and the question is, well, who's going to pay for it? Well, Massachusetts is going to pay for it. Uh, but, you know, in the end, it's going to benefit all the states in New England that have adopted similar programs. Uh, and, you know, there's one state in New England that isn't simpatico with, uh, uh with the rest of the region's decarbonization initiatives. That's New Hampshire. And they don't want to pay for any of this. Uh, and as a result, uh, uh, projects can easily get, uh, uh, wrapped up in, how these costs are allocated to transmission and distribution companies and then ultimately to consumers.
0: Now, I'd like to welcome a special guest, RFF fundraiser, Tommy Wren. Make it rain, Tommy. Thanks, Kristen. And I'm definitely not the one who makes it rain. That's our generous listeners who support the show. I'm here to thank all who've donated. And for those who haven't, I want to encourage you to visit rff.org slash support and make a donation. you will not only support this great work, but you'll be subscribed to Resources Magazine, along with special invitations to RFF's events. And, and you'll have our eternal gratitude. <laughs> yes, Exactly. And again, that's rff.org/support. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks, Tommy. Were there any other barriers that you wanted to mention before we go on to the next next phase?
1: Yes, I thought we we're going to we'll, we'll turn to NIMBY because, I, you know, I in that paper I I kept that for last because I think too many people just say, oh, NIMBY, you can't cite transmission lines, so let's forget about it. And and uh, I, I think that's not a constructive way of approaching the not-in-my-backyard problem. And, and in the paper, I suggest several strategies to reduce opposition to new transmission projects. Uh, and first, uh, it's important to engage all the stakeholders early in a project so that they can have input into uh, into where it's gonna be located and how it's gonna be designed. There's lots of evidence that uh, early engagement and complete engagement with stakeholders can uh, help to support a project that that can get through all of the regulatory hurdles that that, uh, are there. Uh, I also suggest that new transmission projects seek to use existing rights of way, upgrades of existing transmission facilities to higher voltages and capacity Smart grid technologies, basically, to squeeze more out of the existing infrastructure, so that any perceived adverse impacts are not uh, are not increased significantly. And then, for projects requiring new rights of way, uh, uh, there are opportunities to utilize uh, old, old abandoned railway lines, abandoned canal routes, uh, other under underutilized rights of way, undersea, and undergrounding where feasible. Uh, to reduce the adverse impacts. And, and while they, this may sometimes uh, uh, increase costs, uh, uh, it, it also can reduce the, the opposition because uh, the, the impacts are basically uh, reduced because the lines are underground, underwater, or on a right-of-way where people are, are used to noisy trains passing already, and this will, will not be a big incremental impact. And a number of the projects that are moving forward successfully have taken this this route. And finally, I think we have to recognize that uh, if they're going to be losers, they're going to want to be compensated in some way. And I think we have to be prepared to make side payments of various kinds to locations uh, in particular where they don't see any particular benefit from the line, but they see uh potential adverse effects on environmental quality on recreational values and so on and i think we have to be be prepared to uh to to compensate them in some way uh there are stories about a uh, a project that was completed in 1990 uh one of the first major projects connecting uh, hydro quebec with new england that went from quebec through vermont through new hampshire down into massachusetts and the folk wisdom is that if you go through the towns it passes near every one of them has a new fire station or a new police station or a, a new school that dates back to that period of time, uh, really in an effort to spread some of the benefits and reduce opposition so I think the nimby problem is is challenging, but it, it it's it's not insurmountable uh if if uh, these factors are uh, are taken into consideration in. Uh, in in designing a development and planning process.
0: Great. That makes sense. So you've told us, uh, or you've mentioned one project already uh, coming down from Quebec into Massachusetts. Do you want to elaborate on that example a little bit more, or maybe pick another example uh, for a project here in the US that's faced a lot of these hurdles and how it's maybe tried to address them?
1: Yeah. So let me just elaborate a little bit on on what was called the Hydro-Quebec Phase 2 project that that uh, was energized in 1990 and was completed fairly quickly. And I, I think there are a number of attributes of that project that provide some lessons learned. First, it was an all-New England project. It was supported by all the utilities in all six states. The costs were allocated across the states. The uh, the energy was allocated more or less based on the the demand in those states. And as a result, uh, that substantially reduced uh, what may have been opposition because there were benefits as well as costs that were widely distributed in the region. Uh, and I already discussed the, the efforts to work uh, early and hard with the, uh, communities where the, uh, transmission line, uh, uh, passed. And also it made use of the existing rights of way wherever it could to minimize the impacts. And, and, and that project went very, very smoothly. There have been similar projects much more recently that are basically trying to do the same thing, to bring more hydroelectric generation into, uh, into New England. But they've been proposed and developed by individual states uh, in response to procurements. And there was a project called Northern Pass that was going to connect Hydro-Quebec through New Hampshire, through some pristine areas, but to supply just Massachusetts. Uh, uh, and it ultimately uh, just couldn't get approved. And uh, then there was a replacement project called Clean Energy Connect that then goes through Maine. Well, the, the way it was pitched was this is a Massachusetts project. This is where all the clean energy is going. So the people in Maine opposed it. And uh, they, they made some concessions uh, 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 to allocate some benefits to Maine and to uh, identify more of the benefits to Maine and other states of having uh, these increased resources. Uh, the project's now being constructed, but there are still people in Maine trying to block it. So, uh, in, in, in my view, these projects uh, really did not take account properly of the uh, of the the need to have a cooperative development project that spreads the benefits and
0: costs widely. Mm-hmm. Great, that makes a lot of sense. So. Paul, one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, which goes back to the policy issue, which you touched on earlier when you were talking about FERC and, and you know making a proposal about a sort of umbrella authority for uh, for helping to plan with siting. Do you want to elaborate on that policy idea a little bit more, or maybe talk about some other policies that could be implemented at the federal level to help alleviate some of these problems? And also, you know, if you want to wade into these waters, um, you could you could let us know how politically viable you think some. The solutions might be in the years ahead.
1: Sure. Well, the primary regulatory agency at the federal level is is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, and FERC has played a very constructive role in uh, in, in industry restructuring and uh, in development of competitive wholesale markets. But it it's no one would call FERC speedy, <laughs> and uh, its effectiveness also obviously suffers from the continued arguments about decarbonization uh, policy. Uh, and I think FERC can be much more effective once we have a national decarbonization goal. But in the interim, uh, there are things that FERC can do to, uh, uh, to, to facilitate uh, investments in, in, in needed transmission to support decarbonization. Uh, uh, it can revise its uh, planning procedures so that all benefits and costs are taken into account. It could more aggressively enforce the interregional planning uh, rules that were established uh, now almost ten years ago in uh, Order One Thousand. It could simplify the cost allocation rules, which can be very very complicated. Uh, it can promote uh, competitive procurement, which is provided for in Order One Thousand. I think it just needs to be uh, more aggressive uh, and. FERC is basically is a Depression-era regulatory agency that relies on lengthy rulemaking proceedings, uh, limited technical input of its own, uh, and in my view is too dominated by lawyers and complex administrative procedures. And you can see it; they have a rulemaking that's going on right now uh, on, on on the issues we're discussing here, uh, and it, it's going to take forever. Uh, and rather than than presenting here's how we think we can solve the problems, tell us what you think. They ask a long series of vague questions, people come in and they file comments, then there are reply comments, then there's a proposed rule, then there are more comments, then there's a reply comments, then maybe there's a final rule, then it goes to court, it, it could take five years. Uh, and uh, I think we need to look at, at just changing the structure of that agency, maybe to become a, a, a single administrator agency like the EPA uh, and, and, there are models to look at. If we look at England, the, the regulator there, Ofgem, the Office of Gas and Electricity Markets is extremely competent, excellent technical staff. The California Public Utilities Commission does as well. So does the New York Public Service Commission. Uh, the staff, uh, uh has many more informal technical, uh, conferences and proceedings and a lot more technical input than, uh, than FERC does. And, uh, uh I, I, I think we just need a new regulatory agency for the electric power sector if we're gonna if we're gonna make this work. And that that's not to say anything bad about the people who were there. They're, they they work hard, uh, and uh, but this is a an agency that basically goes back to 1935, uh, and it its primary job for many years was licensing new hydroelectric facilities or relicensing old hydroelectric facilities and doing a little bit of regulation of uh, uh, the price that investor-owned utilities charge to municipal utilities. And it really wasn't until the 1980s and 1990s that it became more active uh, in promoting uh, policy changes. And they've never gone back and looked at the, the structure of the agency to see if uh, both its procedures and its human capital uh, are well aligned with the, the goals we have for uh, transforming the electric power industry. And That's a discussion that obviously is politically uh, fraught, uh, but I think it's a discussion that uh, we should begin to have.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And maybe just one kind of technical question on, on that idea. Would such restructuring require legislation? Would it require Congress to act? Or is it something that the executive could do on its own? And maybe there are different gradations of actions that could be taken at different scales.
1: Well, I think to fully implement what I have in mind, it would take congressional action. However... Uh, the administration, the executive, can uh, expand the role of the Department of Energy uh, in uh, transmission planning, indicative planning, uh, identification of uh, transmission opportunities to support the decarbonization goals. They already have some authority in that area, but it hasn't been used much. I think the administration can be more aggressive in using the DOE's existing authority and expanding its staff to basically begin to do some of the things I have in mind for a new umbrella uh, transmission planning agency.
0: Hmm. That's really interesting. Great. Well, certainly as we often do on the show, we're really just scratching the surface of an incredibly complex and, and interesting topic. But but I hope people have gotten a flavor for it and and will go and check out uh the paper, which again we'll have a link to in the show notes. Um so let's go to our last question. Uh the top of the stack. What's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack that you would recommend to our listeners, Paul? You
1: know, I don't I don't read uh Energy and environment books for fun. <laughs> uh, so I try. I work so many so many hours. I try to draw a line between my professional activities and the rest of my life. So I like biography and history. What I'm reading most recently is I've been working through biographies of of Winston Churchill. Uh, Andrew Roberts has an excellent biography. So does John Meacham. And uh, I also like uh, uh, mysteries with uh, interesting people. So I'm a great fan of. Uh, of John Le Carré, and uh, I've reread some of his uh, uh, novels during the pandemic. Uh, one book that I would recommend, which I reread in writing that paper, is a is a book called Networks of Power by Thomas Hughes, which looks at the history, early history, of the development of the electric power sectors uh, in the U.S., in England, and in Germany. And it's really fascinating, and 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 you really learn a lot about transmission in this book because many of the innovations in transmission were basically efforts to, uh, to to access remote hydroelectric facilities that were remote from where demand was. And many of the early innovations were efforts to do that. So there's some similarity to where we are today. Uh, for those who are still stuck at home, uh, I haven't gone to a movie theater in a year and a half, maybe more, but I've been watching some interesting uh, videos. There's a series called The French Village that is really excellent. Uh, there's a film version of a play called "Come from Away," which is about nine uh, eleven uh, and uh, uh, the planes that had to land in uh, in, in Newfoundland uh, and how nice the people were. It's an uplifting kind of play, but you, you can watch it it's a Broadway play uh, you can but you can watch it on TV because it's been filmed. And then finally, for those people scratching their heads about what's going on with the vaccine, I recommend an American experience uh, program called the Polio Crusade, which is about the, uh, the, the development, testing, and distribution of the salt polio vaccine in the uh, early 1950s. And I like that very much because when I was in second grade, I was in the experiment. Oh, wow. Uh, I still remember lining up in the gym, getting my shot and and then a year later, getting a letter in the mail telling me whether I got the placebo or the vaccine, and uh, it's uh, I, I really think it's a great it's a great program.
0: That's fascinating. Which one did you get in the end?
1: I got the Salk vaccine in the end. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's really cool. Okay, great. Well, uh, Paul Jaskow from MIT, this has been really fascinating. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on uh, Resources Radio and telling us about uh, this really fascinating topic and fascinating work that you're doing on it. We really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, and good luck.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, DC. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests, and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.